Well, the Apple iPhone 5 sold more than 5 million units in the first weekend release last September 21st. And in weeks leading up to the update, uh, the release, there, there was no shortage of blogs that, that uh, purported to have leaked videos and photos and 3D renderings detailing the phone both inside and out. Now, the good news for Apple Corporation was this: was that this fall, there didn't appear to have been any misplaced prototypes. Some of you remember uh, um, that there were uh, two experimental iPhone 4s of which the company lost control between the months of March 2010 and July 11. Um, the first incident was involving an Apple iPhone 4 prototype in a, in a German beer garden in Redwood City, California. The second disappeared in a San Francisco tequila bar. Apple was not happy when it lost its prototype. You see, in any industry, prototypes are very valuable. Uh, they're a full-sized functional model that uh, is necessary to put the product through the rigors of real-life testing. Now, more generally speaking, a prototype is a standard example of a particular kind or class or group. And in today's message, we're going to discover that the life of Elijah stands as a prototype of life in God's kingdom, life that is undeniably miraculous and completely ordinary all at the same time. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series that we're titling Old Testament Postcards. Each week, we're looking at a different real-life story of a unique but otherwise ordinary Old Testament character uh, that relates to an extraordinary God. We've said that we could perhaps subtitle these weeks together, Ordinary People, Extraordinary God. Our goals for these seven weeks uh, are twofold. First, to be informed and encouraged. Hopefully, these messages will be building a bridge from the world of the Bible and its characters to our world today, and particularly enable us to see where they fit in the larger story of God's kingdom. And secondly, we want to be encouraged and challenged to actually apply these life lessons uh, to our lives today. So let's pray together as we do that. Lord, we're grateful for a brand new day at the start of a brand new week. Every good and perfect gift comes from you, the Father of lights, in whom there's not a hint or a shadow of turning. Thank you this morning, Lord, for life, for breath, for soundness of mind, ability of body that enables us to gather here. Lord, we're grateful for these gifts. We pray that prayer you taught us to pray. Uh, our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. May the fullness of your blessing, Lord, be revealed in your names in our lives today. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Right here, Lord, in this room and right next door in Vineyard Kids and in all of our lives and families where we work and live and play and go to school, bring your kingdom in the ways you know we need. Put power on your word and our worship today, we pray in your name. Amen. During the reign of King Solomon around 950 B.C., Israel was the most powerful kingdom in the known world. Uh, but Solomon had a fatal flaw. Uh, through the influence of his 700 pagan wives and 300 concubines, his heart turned from worshiping Yahweh, the one true and living God. And so in the sunset of Israel's golden age, the kingdom began to tragically decline as the 
king led his people into idolatry. Now, it's interesting that abandoning God seldom happens quickly, but rather it's like a slow but unchecked death march into the desert. So was the nation of Israel. Eventually, the Hebrew nation was divided. Uh, the ten tribes, ten tribes formed what is known as the Northern Kingdom or Israel. It lasted about 200 years before it was exiled and then destroyed by Assyria. The two tribes of Judah and Benjamin formed what was called the Southern Kingdom or Judah. And it lasted about 300 years until it was uh, captured and carried away into exile by uh, the Babylonians. Every one of the 19 kings of Israel worshipped the golden calf, the, the, the religion they'd borrowed from Egypt and carried with them out of slavery. And some worshipped the god of Baal, or Baal, as we more commonly know, a false god that was introduced by Queen Jezebel. Only a few kings of Judah served the living God. Now, Ahab, King Ahab, was the seventh king of Israel and was the worst of the worst kings. You know, today, when you think of criminals, you might think of recent headlines on the Journal Star or, you know, what you've seen on previous episodes of America's Most Wanted. But when you think of really bad people, you, you probably think of John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, Idi Amin, Adolf Hitler, Kim Jong-il. That, that's the kind of company that Ahab would have kept. Elijah was raised up uh, by God to challenge King Ahab and the idolatry that had been introduced by him and his wife Jezebel, the worship of Baal. It's interesting that Elijah's name was even prophetic. Uh, when you break it down in the Hebrew, it means Yahweh is God. His story is found in the Old Testament books of First and Second Kings. If you want to open there, First Kings chapter 17 is where we'll begin. As you're turning there in your Bible or your Bible app on your phone, let me just share with you a bit of trivia. Elijah is one of only two people in recorded history who did not die. He was swept away by a whirlwind into heaven by what his successor Elisha called a chariot of fire. Would that be cool or what to see that and experience it? The lessons from his life are many. Today, we're going to do just one postcard. We're going to focus uh, on Elijah as a prototype or example of life in the kingdom. And his history teaches that such life is undeniably miraculous and completely ordinary at the same time. Now, many Bible scholars will teach that there are three seasons when God moved miraculously. Sometimes they call them dispensations, a religious term indicating a period of time in which God deals in a special way with a special group of people. And they'll point out the lives of Moses, Elijah, and Jesus as the three dispensations of the miraculous. And that we, they, they say that we should not expect that same kind of divine intervention again. But I just want to say right up front that in the vineyard, we don't believe that these three eras were any special time of God's miraculous favor as contrasted at any other time. They really stand as, as an invitation to all of us about what life in God's kingdom under his rule is supposed to be like. And we live in one age. It's called the kingdom age. And Jesus modeled it, and we're supposed to continue it.
And so we would say that God intends all of life to be incredibly miraculous and, and undeniably ordinary, all mixed together, all at the same time. No, no separation between sacred and secular, no distinction between that which is spiritual and that which is material. It's all one integrated life. That's what he intends for us to experience. Now, it is true that in the church, the, the big C church, generically, that some would like to, to see our life be miraculous all the time, completely miraculous. You know, we would expect a miracle a day. A miracle a day keeps the doctor or devil away or whatever. Claim it, believe it, you can have it, it's all yours. David Parker, a vineyard pastor friend of mine in Lancaster, California, calls this kind of life a fantasy. Now, others in the church just live incredibly ordinarily. They are caught in the grip of a suffocating, terrifying normalcy where God's power never breaks in. Nothing out of the ordinary ever happens, and they never expect it to. That is to say, you know, whatever will be, will be. They believe in God, but just not a God who actually ever does anything. And David Parker calls this kind of life a failure. What I see in Elijah is a combination of the miraculous and the ordinary as what is expected. Now, we may not be quite like Elijah, okay? Um, if the miraculous is seasoning, then Elijah's life is like blackened catfish, okay? Like, maybe ours is a little less. But, but you know, I don't want to just, like, eat oatmeal the rest of my life either. You know, uh, the Bible tells us, the Apostle James, in his letter to the church, in chapter 5, verse 17, Elijah was as human as we are. In this sense, he's not unlike us. He's not in this special class of otherworldly, unordinary, saintly, unapproachable, miraculous kind of people. He's like you and I. And that's what we're going to discover in his story today. Now, maybe seasoned just a little more, but, but I want blackened catfish and oatmeal all mixed together. Now, his story, oh, that sounded terrible, didn't it? Okay. <laughs> Actually, I don't like either one, so. But I thought the imagery worked well. Now, his story unfolds in 1 Kings 17. He shows up in the biblical record without warning, with no introduction, and no pedigree or genealogy, unlike most important Jewish people. 1 Kings 17, 1. Now, Elijah, who was from Tishbe and Gilead, told King Ahab, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, There'll be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Now, friends, that is a bold declaration. It's presumably a judgment uh, against Ahab and Jezebel for defecting from the worship of Yahweh to the worship of Baal. Now, even with what we know today about climatology and meteorology, I mean, it's a difficult to predict the weather, Right. You know, when you watch Chuck Collins on Channel 25 WEK or, you know, Marcus Bailey on Channel 31 WMBD, I mean, they're at, they're right at best, what, halftime maybe? I mean, they predicted storms yesterday. They missed it by a full day. Here it is. But Elijah is not just predicting the weather. He is controlling the weather. That's pretty incredible. Undeniably miraculous. This isn't one of those occasions that's just kind of coincidental or, you know, maybe could have been, maybe, well, I'm kind of thinking maybe that was God. No, this was God, like all the way. Verses two and three. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go to the east and hide by the Cherith Brook near where it enters the Jordan River. 
The Lord says, go and hide. No, 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 wait a minute, God. Okay, you give me the power to control the weather. Can't you do something supernatural about my protection, my well-being? Nope, God says, go and hide in what is now known as the West Bank in Israel. And so right from the introduction, we're three verses into the history, the postcard of Elijah, and what do we see? A strange mixture of the undeniably miraculous and the incredibly ordinary. Verses 4 to 6, Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him, and camped beside Cherith Brook, east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. Now, when I was a teenager, I did a lot of camping with my cousins out at my Uncle Carl's Lake out on Thousand Dollar Road up there in Brimfield. And uh, we ate a lot of fresh bass and bluegill that we caught in the lake. We camped on the campfires, but we never had any blackbirds bringing us a roast beef sandwich from Arby's. Never happened. No. So in the middle of ordinary means of protection, go and hide, what do we see? The extraordinary God moves in undeniably uh, miraculous power and brought Elijah food through the ravens. Verse 7 tells us that the drought that Elijah had prophesied actually caused the brook, his very own source of water, to dry up. So today's problems, or today's solutions are tomorrow's problems. <laughs> Okay, he prophesied, now he's got his own uh, problem of his own creation. So God tells Elijah to go to Zarephath, where a widow would feed him. And it's interesting that God chose a Gentile widow to care for his servant. I believe it was probably a, a larger paramessage to his own people. It was to shame them, because how much more humiliating could you get to be fed by a woman, a widow no less, who was a Gentile? It's three strikes against God's people. But I think it just illustrates the utter ordinariness of the story. So we go from God providing miraculously to Elijah with the ravens, bringing him food, uh, his breakfast, lunch, and dinner, to now having an unnamed, poor, Gentile widow having to fix him food. Well, he arrived at the village gates. The story unfolds that he saw her gathering sticks and asked this woman uh, if she would give him a cup of water and a a loaf of bread. She said, well, I don't, I don't have any bread in the house. In fact, she had just enough flour and cooking oil for one last meal, after which she believed when she fixed it, uh, she and her son would die. The story continues in verse 13. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and just do what you said, but, but make a little bread for me first, and then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, there'll always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and crops to grow again. So she did, as Elijah said. And she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. An extraordinary miracle of provision worked by the extraordinary God under the most ordinary of circumstances to the most ordinary people. You're beginning to get the picture, Elijah's life as a prototype of life in the kingdom. Now, interestingly, it did take a risk on the part of Elijah to do what God had said. That's the difficulty. Remember last week we discovered that God never asks us to do impossible things. Ordinary people do ordinary things, and he does the impossible. But that doesn't mean it's always easy. 
Sometimes doing the ordinary thing takes an incredible risk. You see, Elijah had to actually say to King Ahab, it's not going to rain. He actually had to invite the woman to, to this poor starving widow to give up her last bit of meal and, and flour and oil for his sake. So it took a risk. So it's ordinary. They're not, they're not uh, difficult of themselves. That is, they're not impossible, but they may be challenging and difficult. So it takes a willingness to risk to enter into the land of the miraculous. Now, sometime later, this widow woman's son uh, became extremely sick and eventually died. Now, go figure. In the middle of experiencing God's undeniably miraculous provision, the flour and oil are never running out, the son dies. You getting the picture here? This is life in the kingdom, isn't it? Perhaps you're experiencing the already, what we've described as the already of God's provision, where the the, uh, power and presence of the future is breaking into your life. And in the middle of experiencing the already, we then experience the not yet. Maybe you get sick or a loved one passes away. Uh, We have a difficult time making our ends meet. The, uh, the check runs out before the month runs out. You know, we lose our job or our pension is diminished or we're lonely or afraid. We are anxious or worried about something. We have a care for our ch- children or our grandchildren. You get the picture. We're experiencing the already and yet we're experiencing the not yet together. And this strange mixture of the miraculous and the ordinary is what life in God's kingdom is all about. It's what Derek Morphew, a vineyard scholar, calls the glorious contradiction, the already, the not yet. God is moving powerfully in some pocket of our life, right there in the middle of the bills needing to be paid and grass needing to be mowed and the children needing new winter coats and laundry that needs to be washed and difficult conversations needing to be had with a a family member or roommate or a fellow uh, employee. Verses 19 to 23 describe how Elijah then stretches himself out over the dead boy and prays three times, and God brings the dead boy back to life. I mean, what do you say there? Wow. You shake your head, don't you? He took a risk. We don't have any specific record that God instructed him to do that, but he just went for it. He did it. Uh, I'll, I'll admit to you that I have prayed for a number of dead people through the years, either in the hospital or in the funeral home. Uh, I've never prayed for any of them with what I would call unction or like like power. Well, obviously, because none of them ever raised back up. I think we're supposed to pray for the dead. That's the model of life of Jesus. It's the model of life in the kingdom. I, I've known others who have prayed for the dead, and they've come back to life. Um, but I'm going to keep praying for the dead because that's the picture that we get. That's the instruction of the Lord. And and and. Lord knows that it, maybe at some point we'll be privileged to see a resuscitation that someone who has died before their time. Now, in chapter 18, Elijah's story continues when he challenges the nation of Israel and especially the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah to worship the Lord alone as God. And this is a, a dramatic power encounter now between the two kingdoms, the kingdom of Yahweh, the kingdom of of the devil. And we we pick up the story in verse 21. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people were completely silent. 
Now bring two bowls, the prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish, cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bowl, and lay it on the wood of the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God, and the people agree. Now, this isn't something you do on your own initiative, unless God is prompting you to do this, right? It seems to have come from God's direction. Both verses 1 and 36 in this chapter, where we see at your command, that phrase, seem to indicate that that Elijah had already received this as, a, as an instruction from the Lord. And, and his life is a prototype of what we've shared before, hear and obey, hear and obey. This, this, this process of walking with and following the Lord is, is not a stagnant, like embracing a set of doctrinal truths, but rather a, a walk of faith where we hear and obey, hear and obey. This, this is what's being modeled by Elijah. But here's the thing. But because fire was the element over which the god Baal supposedly presided, in the minds of the people, this probably seemed like a very reasonable request. Because their god, Baal, who controlled fire, was certainly going to answer their prayers. The story continues in verse 26. So they prepared one of the bowls, placed it on the altar, and then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. And then they danced, hobbling around the altar that they'd made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming or is relieving himself. <laughs> or maybe he's on a trip or is asleep and needs to be wakened. So they shouted louder. And following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon and at the time of the evening sacrifice, and still there was no sound, no reply, no response. Then Elijah prepared his sacrifice. He had the people fill four large water pots, capable of holding about four gallons each, dump it over the bowl, the wood, the altar, and even the trench that they dug around the rebuilt altar, the stones used for the worship of Yahweh that he'd now reconstructed. And not just once, not just twice, but three times they did this. And then Elijah prayed, verse 36, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and I am your servant. Prove that I have done this at your command. O Lord, Answer me, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you've brought them back to yourself. And immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven, burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and even licked up all the water in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Well, I guess so. What other response would you possibly have watching this? You know, now we read it and because we're familiar, many of us are familiar with the story, we kind of, oh yeah. Can you imagine if you'd been standing there in front of like nearly a thousand false prophets? You know, like this is a death warrant. If this doesn't work, you are dead. And to see the fire of God falling from heaven and licking up even the dust on the altar. But we have an ordinary person whose life was filled with the incredibly miraculous and incredibly ordinary, 
Now, following God's instructions and the extraordinary God breaks in and works the miraculous. It took the, an incredible willingness to actually follow and obey God, didn't it? Elijah could have said no. If he had not cooperated, we would not be reading his story this morning. We don't know. We'd, we'd probably be you know, singing his epithet because he would have been dead. Now, the postscript to this powerful story that we never often talk about is, is in verse 40, where Elijah killed all 850 prophets. Oh, that's a gory detail. We'll just skip right over that. To, uh... But it's, that's part of the story. God executing judgment on the 850 false prophets at the hand of Elisha. Now then, in response, perhaps, to the, as retribution for the death of like her prophets, Queen Jezebel makes a death wish to her gods if Elijah isn't dead within 24 hours. Chapter 19, verses 2 to 4. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I've not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, town of Judah, and left his servant there. And then he went alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. So within a day of experiencing history's perhaps most incredible power encounter, a victory, a miraculous victory, Elijah was running for his life. He was afraid. He was ready to die. Is that ordinary or what? Can we relate? You know, God moves powerfully in our life. Maybe he... He, in our family, in our church family, and in our small group, he answers a prayer that you have desperately been praying for months or years. Uh, you, you see that he does something quite dramatic, even supernatural. And within a few days, we are fearful and anxious. We're doubting God's goodness. We wonder, did God really say, was that really the Lord? Or was that coincidence? Uh, sometimes we're just complaining to God like Elijah was. And we're just saying, oh, I just had it. I, I just quit. Can you identify with the utter ordinariness and, and, and incredibly miraculous this story is? You know, we would think that experiencing the inbreaking power of God into our life would change everything, wouldn't we? But it doesn't. It didn't in Elijah's case. It doesn't in ours. In fact, we're, when we're in a jam, uh, we'll often bargain, bargain with God. We might not tell anybody this, but in our own minds, we do this all the time, don't we? We say, God, if you just do this or if you do that, if you answer this prayer or that, then, then I'll, I, I, I'll go to church every week. I know we've been missing lately, but I promise we'll go every week. Or we say, I'll, I'll, I'll start paying my tithe like I know I'm supposed to. I'll, I'll read the Bible every day or, or five out of seven, Lord. You know, we bargain with God and you know what? We don't do those things, but maybe for a while. But we we stop. Here's the deal, friends. Let me let me help you out. Don't don't make those kind of claims, because then you won't have to deal with the guilt that comes after you make them and you don't follow through. It's human nature. That's life in the kingdom, because we are incredibly miraculous but extremely ordinary all at the same time. We're like Elijah. Lord, I've had enough. Take my life. I'm done. Twenty four hours ago, he had experienced the most dramatic power encounter in recorded history. I'm done, Lord. I'm over. I'm, I'm through this stuff. Now, we might think that, well, maybe Elijah suffered mood swings. 
maybe he was manic depressive, bipolar, had an anxiety disorder. You know, he maybe he needed medication. You know, we might think when we experience these kind of swings, well, maybe I need therapy. Yeah, I, you know, what's wrong with me? I, I, I need to like see a a, a a psychiatrist, or you know, we we think you know maybe maybe I just need medication. We we think you know maybe something's like inherently wrong with us. But the truth is, in in these kinds of situations, nothing's wrong with us. We're normal. I, I'm I'm not mitigating the need for medication if if that's what we need, or seeing a therapist. I've seen a therapist. I'm not I'm not saying what I'm not saying. What I'm, what I'm saying is we think something's wrong with us when we see these dramatic 24-hour mood swings in the kingdom. And I'm just saying, welcome to life in the kingdom. This is, this is what it's like. Uh, this is the normal experience. You know, in a power confrontation with the enemy, in a difficult or, or oppressive life circumstance, we experience God's miraculous intervention, we, and we have victory, and within a, a day or a week, we're, it's, it's followed with fear and anxiety and doubt and insecurity. Wondering if we're even saved. That is life in the kingdom. Elijah was as human as we are. We are like him. His history teaches us that life in God's kingdom is this undeniably miraculous and completely ordinary mix of stuff all together. So now if this is true, how do we understand real miracles? Not the false ones like the illusionists who appear to cut a, you know, a person in half. The psychic on the 900 hotline, you know, who claims to have insight into your life or David Blaine's demonic counterfeits. The real miracles where the rule of God actually breaks in to the natural or material world and sets aside the laws of nature. And you see the, the life of the future breaking into the present. Well, two things to understand. First, real miracles in ordinary life are a sign of God's kingdom. When Jesus came, he brought the kingdom of God to the earth. And ever since then, as we are awaiting the full consummation or completion of the kingdom, when Jesus comes at the end of the age, literally, physically, and returns to the earth a second time, until then, we live in the reality of two kingdoms at once. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of the, of the devil, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of good, the kingdom of evil, at war within one another. And we are living in that time. But part of the evidence that God's kingdom is actually present is miracles. They are his calling card, as it were. No doubt many of you have traveled this summer, and it's the construction season, and you've gone through a construction zone, like on an interstate, and you, you go through and you see a large fluorescent or flashing sign that says, work zone ahead, right? 45 mile an hour. Well, miracles are kind of like that sign. They're like God's sign announcing that he's at work, work zone ahead. Um, the real, though unseen, presence of the future is breaking into our life right here. God is at work among his people, and we should expect to see the evidence of that. That's the sign. Now, certainly God will occasionally use the miraculous to turn the hearts of people to him, to draw them to himself or back to himself and bring glory to his name. But as we've said, miracles themselves don't produce a heart change. They create an environment and preparation, but they don't have power in themselves to touch a human heart. But they're just a sign of God at work. A second thing I think is helpful to remember is that real miracles in ordinary life are a down payment of the ultimate truth and reality that we'll experience someday. 
It's as if to the widow, in providing for her and in raising her dead son back to life, God is saying, uh, I just want you to know that I provide, that I care for you, and that I'm on the side of life. Uh, to Ahab, in controlling the rain for three years and then in consuming the, the, the altar in fire, it is as if God is saying to Ahab, I just want you to know that I'm a real God, the Yahweh God, who's alive and rules over all, and you should worship me. To all people everywhere, Jesus' miracles are saying, hey, I just want you to know, uh, my, my sons and my daughters, to those of you who don't yet know me, I'm on the side of life and love and forgiveness and restoration and power and blessing and freedom from oppression. That's the side I'm on. And these miracles are a sign that that's what I'm standing for. You see, in the coming future age, um, when we live in the presence of God on what the Bible describes as the new earth, we're going to experience a freedom from sickness and, and pain and death and oppression and poverty and lack and uh, hatred and war and famine. None of that stuff's going to be present in the, in the future age. And these blessings are already here in part, not yet all the way, but in part as evidence as signs that God's kingdom is here. You see, when Jesus came, there was an inbreaking of the power of the future age in the middle of the story. And now we can say these blessings are already here in part because uh, Jesus inaugurated, started the kingdom. And these miracles show where we are ultimately all heading. They're proof of ultimate reality and truth. The story of Elijah, the ministry of Jesus, our lives today propel the larger storyline of the Bible forward. Every time we see the inbreaking of God's kingdom in miraculous ways, we see our lives, the story of God being propelled forward to the day when the kingdom is fully consummated. They are inviting us to embrace, again, the real conclusion of history. Now, I want more of the miraculous in my otherwise ordinary life. Don't you? I want more of God's miracle. I want more of the kingdom. I need more of the miraculous. Tina and I are facing life situations where there's no way that in our own power or strength or resources, anything is going to get any better, but rather grow worse unless God intervenes. And I know many of you face the same situation in, in various pockets of your life. You need God to intervene. I, I, I want to be more like blackened catfish than oatmeal. Okay. Uh, and so I'm prone to ask, are there choices that would be made that could help me have a greater sense of God's uh, power and presence, that, that I could expect more of the miraculous? And I, I want to share in closing just four tips. First, if we want to experience more of God's miraculous, then connect with his overriding purpose. That is to say, you know, Elijah's life was filled with this overarching passion to love and obey God, whatever that meant. And let's connect with God at that level. Whatever it means to love and obey God, connect with that. Be intentional about drawing close to God and experiencing his love for you as a son or a daughter, his, his never-ending, inexhaustible love, a non-performance-centered love. We're not earning anything from God. We're, we're just basking in the, the grace and the goodness of God, welcoming us into his family. 
to, to say, God, I thank you that all the promises in you are yes and amen. I thank you that as your son or your daughter, I don't need to earn your approval. I've, I'm now just experiencing your love. I can't keep my salvation by working hard for you. And so I, we can just relax in the fullness of his grace for us. And we can say, God, thank you that all, all that, that I need is in you. And the, the picture of the reign of King Solomon before his tragic fall is, shows me that you want me to experience love and joy and blessing and goodness and power and peace. It's all there. And that's your desire for me. Secondly, if we want to experience more of God's miraculous, then we just need to trust Jesus. There's an interesting text when, in the book of Mark where Mark records that when Jesus ministered in his hometown, because of their unbelief, Jesus could do no mighty miracles among them except place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. You see, the opposite of unbelief is trust or faith, the noun and verb form, to trust or have faith, same thing. Faith is an expectation that God will actually interrupt and intervene. We're confident that he'll do that. Faith or trust is is a willingness to say, God, uh, I know you are not limited to the diagnosis of the doctor, that you are, are, are not limited to my resources or my current job, to the limitations of my family background or my bloodline or my difficult circumstances. Rather, trust says in your heart, God, I know you are good. God, I know you are present. God, I know that you're able to do way more than I ask or imagine in this broken and fallen world. And I refuse to accept and live by just whatever will be, will be. Trust says, I'm going to pray to the Lord God of heaven and earth, the one who rules over heaven and earth, and I'm going to look to him to move heaven and earth and minister to my desperate circumstances. That's what trust says. And so I encourage you, to, in order for us to experience more of God's miraculous, that we just lean into trusting Jesus. Thirdly, if we want to experience more of God's miraculous, then we must obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit. The things that God asked Elijah to do were not impossible. They were possible, but they were difficult. But he still had to obey, didn't he? He had to put legs on his faith. He actually had to speak out the word to to King Ahab. He had to ask the widow for water and for bread. He had to challenge the prophets. He had to build the altar. He had to offer the sacrifice. He had to prostrate himself over the dead boy. You see, it required his cooperation and and, and the things that were going on in his mind and heart were were certainly challenging, But, but he obeyed. He had to respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And then God did the miraculous. And, you know, one of the things we're challenged with was, what, what, what if nothing happens? Well, that's not our job. Keep the division of labor in the appropriate camps. Our job is to do what he tells us to do. And his job is to do the, the, the impossible. Now, it doesn't mean that we can just be reckless or fanatical and just blame God. Well, God told me. Well, if he did, great. But don't just use that as a catchphrase for all the crap in your life. God told me. You know, No. If we exercise faith and trust Jesus and he speaks, then step out in obedience and then God can work miraculously. Today, maybe you'll respond by some kind of uh, step towards God. Maybe as we pray at the close of this service or in worship in just a few moments or this week in your small group, you'll, you'll take the risk and say, Lord, I'm willing to obey you and I'm stepping out. And lastly, I'll finish with this. If we want to experience more of God's miraculous provision, then trust in his timing. 
as we trust him for the miraculous, just remember, it seems that God prefers to wait until the last minute. We don't like that, do we? But it's how he reveals himself to be. So if we're going to be prototypes of life in the kingdom, we should fully expect our lives to be at one and the same time, this integrated cataclysm of ordinary and miraculous victory and defeat, mountaintop and dark valley, defeating the enemy and hiding in a cave. This is the normal kingdom life, all the while leaning into wanting more of the already in our lives. Lord, thank you that through this powerful life story of Elijah, you encourage and challenge us today. We pray that uh, that it would change our lives. Uh, and some of us would heave a huge sigh of relief that we're not crazy or otherwise like dysfunctional, that we are normal. But Lord, we're not going to rest at normal until we see more of the already breaking into our lives right where we need it in your name. Amen.